The late British pastor and author John Stott once wrote, at every stage in your life, pride is your greatest enemy and humility your greatest friend. At every stage, at every turn of your life, pride is there as your greatest enemy and humility your greatest friend. With this penetrating statement, what John Stott does is summarize the teaching in the Bible that spans Old and New Testaments about the danger of pride and the blessing of humility. Let me give you a sampling this morning across the Testaments. David sings this song, 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 28. He says, O Lord, you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the prideful to bring them down. That song is reiterated in Psalm 18 as well. Proverbs 16, 18, perhaps one that's familiar to you. Pride goeth before destruction, an arrogant spirit before a fall. Warning, warning, warning. Here's one more in the New Testament. James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A recurring theme in the Bible is the danger of pride and the blessing of humility. At every turn of your life, pride is your greatest enemy and humility your greatest friend. Well, not only does the Bible warn of the danger of pride in song form, in proverb form, in letter form in the New Testament, it also warns of the danger of pride in narrative form. In the stories of the Bible, and we come to one of those stories this morning as we conclude our sermon series in Genesis that we've entitled God the Creator and the Redeemer. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, you can find that on page 8 in the Bibles we provided on your chairs. And this morning we conclude our series in Genesis. We started this in mid-January, and we've set out to, to do the first 11 chapters. It, it breaks there. So you, you, you have patriarchal history starting in Genesis chapter 12 through 50. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. That's a series for another day, but we're concluding the series going through the creative work of God and the initial redeeming work of God in chapters 1 through 11. I should note our practice here, as I mentioned in the introduction to the service, is to preach through books of the Bible alternating Old and New Testaments. And so what we'll do for the next 10 weeks, the, a summer series, will be to course through the letter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul's letter to 1 Thessalonians. I've never preached that before. I'm looking forward to it. And so we'd love for you to come and, and join us. If perhaps you're, you're a guest with us, check out this sermon series uh, that we will walk through for the next 10 weeks. Back to Genesis chapter 11, page 8 in your Bibles. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one. There are some hardback Bibles, black hardback cover uh, in the lobby. Please take one if you need one. Verses 1 through 9, the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name 
for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building of the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And the title of this sermon is Beware the Stairway to Heaven. Beware the Stairway to Heaven. And the take-home truth is this. Beware ascending the stairway of pride and self-sufficiency in this life. Rather, trust in the Lord who descended in humility to save and satisfy you. Beware ascending the stairway of pride and self-sufficiency in this life. Oh, it's a great temptation in your work, in your relationships, even in your church. Beware ascending that stairway, that ladder of pride and self-sufficiency. Instead, trust in the Lord who descended in humility to save you and to satisfy you. I want to trek through this passage with you by observing the changes in direction. And by direction, I'm not talking north, south, east, and west. I'm talking about theological direction, theological positioning between God and people. There's multiple movements of theological direction in this passage by people that speak to spiritual realities, where the people are in relation to God and how he responds to them. There are shifts, changes in theological direction in this passage, three of them. So first we'll see the people ascend in pride, verses one through four. Notice the direction. They're, they're ascending, exalting themselves. The people ascend in pride, verses 1 through 4. The Lord then descends from his heavenly throne, verses 5 through 7. And then thirdly, the people are dispersed outward by God. Three theological directions. The people ascend, the Lord descends, and the people are sent out. That's the outline. Up, down, and out. Up, down, and out. That'll take you right through this Tower of Babel. Again, the take-home truth that we want to drive is beware ascending the stairway of pride and self-sufficiency. And instead, trust in the Lord who descended in humility to save and satisfy you. Let's consider the first theological direction. The people ascend in pride. In verse 1, we learn about a powerful unity that humanity shared at this point in history. Well, what is that unity? It's linguistic unity, one language, one tongue. The whole earth had one language and the same words. Communication, friends, is power. You know this. Communication is power. It leads to fluent idea sharings. It leads to creativity and ingenuity. When everybody is 
on the same page. Think about your work departments, your sports teams, the groups and clusters that you're a part of. People are always talking about, we need to get folks on the same page. What do they mean by that? They mean pulling together in the same direction, and communication is key to that. And the people here are able to pull together in an unparalleled way because they're all speaking the same language. They're shared ideas, readily being conversed. Communication is power. Well, people at this point in history are certainly on the same page, but unfortunately, the way they're pulling is not good. The purpose for which they pull is not good, as we're about to find out. We should note that Genesis 10 and 11 aren't chronological. It's important to know that. You would think, maybe just reading this narrative, most of the events have been chronological, but 10 doesn't come before 11. How do we know that? Well, in chapter 11, we're told that they all speak the same language. But if you read chapter 10, after each of the genealogies of Noah's three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem, notice how the author summarizes the conclusion of that son's lineage. At the end of verse 5, we see Japheth. At the end of verse 20, we see Ham. At the end of chapter 10, verse 31, we see these are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, plural, their lands and their nations. So evidently, they already had been dispersed and they have their own languages, right? So you're get, you have the summary in chapter 10 of all these people groups and their dispersion and the languages that they have. God's already done the work in chapter 11 in chapter 10. So it's not chronological. It's just an important note here. Chapter 11 is going back for theological teaching purposes to an episode that happened at some undefined time after the flood. We don't know when. We don't know exactly when. Some undefined time after the flood when they had one language. And they were unified linguistically, pulling together, as we can see, in the wrong direction. We see this wrong direction, verse 2 and following. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now some geography. We saw some of this last week as Dylan, our associate pastor, preached through chapter 10 in Genesis. Shinar. Where is Shinar? Sometimes it's called Mesopotamia. Maybe in your world cultures or history classes, Mesopotamia literally means between two rivers, kind of the fertile crescent between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. That's Shinar, modern-day Iraq. And this city that they build, Babel, is what became Babylon. It's about 50 miles south of Baghdad. So we're talking modern-day Iraq, and where this episode happens is about 50 miles south of Baghdad, Babel. So that's where they settle in this, this plain, and that's where we begin this building project. Now, a little bit of literary context here. Dylan unpacked this man, this king, this warrior figure, Nimrod, in Genesis 10, verse 10. He is the one who pridefully, self-sufficiently served as a warrior, a, a hunter, who was the king of several cities on the plain of Shinar. So this area is, is Nimrod's territory. We read in Genesis 10, verse 10, he's the one who erected Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, all ruled by King Nimrod, who is this picture of pride and self-sufficiency. That's exactly what we're going to see here in chapter 11. 
chapter 11 is, is the roots of what would become the kingdoms of Nimrod. They settle there, we see at the end of chapter 2, they settle there in the land, the plain of Shinar. There's an issue here. Why is them settling here, populating in density here, why is this an issue? Well, if you're reading your Bible in succession, the Lord has repeated twice over something very important called the creation blessing or the creation mandate, which says, go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Don't consolidate in one place, the Lord said. Fill the earth, spread out, disperse. What we see here is a disobeying of that creation mandate, that creation blessing that we see in Genesis 1.28 to Adam and then repeated in Genesis 9 verse 1 to Noah. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Continue to propagate and populate outward, filling the earth. But here, notice they're, they're settling and consolidating. We, hear, we see the seeds of their disobedience will, that will soon grow into full rebellion. So settling in Shinar, verse 3, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen. It's an asphalt, kind of a petroleum-based mortar. Stick the bricks together. They say, hey, let's use our technology to do something significant. They are impressed with the power of their tools, aren't they? And their technology that ought to sound familiar to you. Oh, how impressed are we with our tools and our technology? It gives us a false sense of strength and self-sufficiency. It's dangerous. It's a blessing. Like gifts from God can be. Tools and technology aren't inherently evil. What human beings do with them, though, can be evil. And that's what we see here. They take a good gift advance in technology, the ability to build, and they use it for bad purposes. That's what's going on here. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly in a kiln, baking bricks, and let's build. Verse 4, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, that lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Oh, how quickly we can become enamored with our tools. We can trust in our tools and our technology and what they can accomplish for us. Trust in the gift instead of the giver of the gift. That's always the problem. God gives good things, but we take them and we trust in them over and against him. And we use them for inappropriate purposes. That's what's happening here. Self-sufficient. They falsely believe that they have no need of God. What do they say about this city and this tower? It's for ourselves. It's for our name's sake. The pride is just oozing from the passage, isn't it? Let us build for ourselves a city. Not propagate, not populate outward, filling the earth as God has said twice over. Rather, let's consolidate here our power, our people, our resources in one city for ourselves. That's what they're doing name building. Their self-sufficiency continues. Let us build for ourselves a tower. Now, again, if you're just reading quickly, wow, they're just building something high and architecturally impressive. There's something else going on here. If you've had a chance to study a little bit of ancient Near East, maybe you've heard of a structure called a ziggurat. A ziggurat. 
is a kind of a pyramid with exterior steps, steps, thousands of steps, huge structure. You, you can go back to 3rd century BC and some, see some of these in the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia. Massive structures. They look like pyramids with external steps that go up and up. And at the top of the ziggurat is oftentimes a shrine or an altar where idolatry happens, sacrifice happens. And so this tower, think of a temple tower, a skyscraper place of idolatry is what this is. They're building a city for themselves and they're worshiping idols apart from the living God, the creator God, the redeemer God. What's going on here is sinister, departing from the ways of God. People are going their own way like before the flood, tragically. That's the course of humanity. Well, what is their decision to build this city and this tower rooted in? We see their motive in verse 4, don't we? They say, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What's their motive? What's driving their decision-making? Pride and insecurity. Pride and insecurity is driving their decision-making. Pride, they want to make a name for themselves. They want to glory in their building, in their city. In their tower, look how impressive. They want to make a name for themselves apart from God. And insecurity, you see, they fear losing control. And so they consolidate power in one place, people in one place, resource in one place. They fear losing control, losing power, losing consolidated resources. Oh, the dangers of pride and insecurity in our own lives. Friend, let me ask you, what drives your decision-making in life? How do pride and insecurity, the fear of what people think, the fear of being exposed, the fear of being seen as an imposter, the fear of being an incompetent leader, employee, parent, how do pride and insecurity drive your behaviors? They're powerful motivators here. There's a warning, red light warning in this passage. What drives me? You've got to ask and answer that question today. What moves you to do what you do? The Bible's beautiful in that it lifts the hood on what moves and motivates these people. And it helps us self-reflect. What moves you? What drives you to work like you do, the hours that you do? The kind and quality of work that you do. What drives it? What drives you to build relationships and to network with other people? Are you primarily interested in the building of your own name? How do fear and insecurity hold sway over you? In what ways do you fear being exposed as a fragile and flawed human being and coworker, leader, researcher, teacher, parent, cause you to work in overdrive, perhaps to step on people to make a name for yourself, to prop up a false sense, a facade of who you are. This is all just smoke and mirrors here in, in the Tower of Babel. They're empty people trying to bite, scratch, and claw their way to make themselves something. It never works. 
It's never going to work. In God's economy, the way up is the way down. To go up, to actually have relationship, right relationship with God, is to, is to go down and humbly, humbly receive him, humbly trust in him, humbly serve him. For anybody who wants to be great, Jesus says, Mark chapter 10, he must be servant of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In God's economy, the way up is the way down. Humility, that's true greatness. That's the way of God, humility. So what drives you in life? There are good things and there are bad things. Answer that, wrestle with that question this week. First, the people ascend in pride. That's the first theological direction. Secondly, the Lord descends from his heavenly throne. Notice this change in direction that we see in verses five through seven. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. There is a striking irony here. Notice the people falsely think with, with their technology and their tools and their bricks and their mortar, they can build and build, build up to the heavens. But as high as they build, notice the Lord still has to come down from his throne. Like we just sang in A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he sits enthroned above all earthly powers. And no matter high humans think they build, he's going to come down. You cannot reach his throne. It is unmatched. He is the highest and the greatest of all. He sits enthroned above all earthly powers. And he comes down to do his bidding. To deal with this sinful situation that we see here in Genesis 11. We cannot climb a ladder in this life. To make ourselves impressive to him or anybody else. To make ourselves acceptable to him or anybody else. You can't climb the ladder through behavior modification, through accomplishments, through accolades. It's never going to work. It's a chasing after the wind. It's going to slip right through your fingers. It never can be grasped. The way up is actually the way down. The way of Christ. The only way for us to rightly relate with God is for him to come down to us. That's what we see here. God comes down in an act of judgment, yes, but an act of grace as well. God comes down to work judgment and grace, to intervene among sinful humanity. Praise God that he came down. That's the trajectory of biblical theology. He comes down in Genesis 11. He is coming down in the incarnation in the most marvelous of ways. In humility and lowliness, occupying our existence, sympathizing with us, ultimately shouldering our sin, being buried in a tomb, and rising again on the third grave, on the third day. He comes down. He intervenes. It's a sneak preview of what he will do later in the New Testament. We see judgment and grace in this passage. Verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. See, God knows here the potential of people pulling together for rebellious purposes, doesn't he? Nothing will be impossible for them. That does not mean good things. He is 
worried about the ruin that it will lead to if they're pulling together in unison with one spoken language. And so he devises a plan to confuse the languages, to therefore blunt their evil scheming, to dilute their power, their collective power that they had through one language. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Let us go down likely a reference to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons existing in perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect order from before all time. Let us go down and do dealing with humanity. So he confuses their speech. He dilutes their power to plan and pull together on this building project. And they scatter. They disperse. So the people ascend in pride. The Lord descends from his heavenly throne. Thirdly and finally, the Lord disperses them outward. Up, down, and out. Here we see them going out. The people are dispersed. We see this in verses 8 and 9. The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off the building of the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over all of the earth. This confusing of their languages, this kind of diluting of their power, was an act of judgment and grace. So on the one hand, it's an act of judgment. Their lives became more difficult after this. They didn't have that shared language, that, that unity, that fluidity. Their plan is thwarted. Communication, life, dealings are now more difficult. It's a judgment. There's discipline here. It's also a grace to them. Because in blunting their rebellion, he actually preserves them. Because uninhibited, they would ruin themselves, destroy themselves in their sinfulness. God blunts that rebellion. He paves them a way to obey him. Notice, God himself is fulfilling the creation mandate, the creation blessing to fill the earth. It's by his hand, his dispersing hand, that they're going about the earth to fill it. God empowers his own commandment to be fulfilled. He's the power supply. He's the power supply. It's not an excuse to go on your rebellion. Should we continue in sin that grace may, may abound? By no means, Paul says. But rest assured, God is so gracious. Even in our sin, he comes and he paves a way for us it gives us power to obey and do right. So we see here. It's an act of judgment and grace in him coming down. He intervenes in the midst of our sin and rebellion and sets the stage, paves a way for a better future. Think about some of the idols that you've erected in your own life. Think about the outcome of worshiping those idols. In some ways, we're still worshiping them, and we, have, we don't have an outcome. We haven't been found out yet. But in other ways, the Lord in his grace and in his judgment has shown us the futility, the emptiness of worshiping those pillars and those idols. I've shared parts of my story with you multiple times. I can't help but think about this as a 20-year-old kid who is supremely insecure and who wanted to be liked above all. And much of what drove me in athletics and academics and in social relationships is, was what 
people thought of me. I wanted to be liked. I wanted to be known. And the Lord in his grace, in a matter of about six, eight months, each one of those pillars of athletics, academics, and a relationship that I was in, that I was attaching my identity to, the Lord just chopped each three pillar down, each of the three pillars down. And I found myself turned on my head upside down, not knowing who I was. And I look back on that now and say, oh, that was painful, but it was painfully redemptive because the Lord used that to send me on another path that led to life and satisfaction and salvation. The Lord came down and visited me as a 20-year-old sophomore in college by chopping down the pillars that I was building, erecting for my own namesake, my own insecurity, chopped them down, showed me a better way through the Bible, through Christian community, through people who loved me, no matter what I did or how, how I, poorly I performed, didn't matter. That's the local church, friends. You don't have to perform before one another. You don't have to perform before the Lord. He loves you because he created you and he sent his son to die for you. Get off the treadmill of performance. Get off it. You're accepted in the beloved. You're accepted in Christ before you do one act of service. He loves you because it's in his nature to love you. That's the gospel. Stop performing. Cease striving and know that the Lord is God. Psalm 46, it's all over the Bible. Praise God that he comes down and he intervenes in our lives, bringing his judgment and grace. He did it in the finest way at the cross. He came down in lowliness. He died in lowliness where judgment and mercy met. Our sin was paid for. Mercy flowed out to all who would receive him. This is the way of God to come down from his earthly throne, from his heavenly throne to this earth where we are and to intervene in judgment and grace. As you continue to read your Bible, you come to a passage that's monumental in salvation history, and that is Acts chapter 2. What do we see in Acts chapter 2? It's the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is the day that this passage is reversed. Pentecost in Acts 2 reverses what we see here in Genesis chapter 11. People's languages are confused and they're dispersed everywhere. What do we see then in Acts chapter 2? People from all over the face of the earth have gathered in Jerusalem. And suddenly the Holy Spirit comes, fills the room, empowers the disciples to speak the gospel one gospel, one name, Jesus Christ, in multiple languages, gathering in the church. Gathering in the church under one name, one banner, Jesus Christ. So Babel is reversed in Acts chapter 2 through the sending of the Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. One name, one gospel, one message gathering people. That's how we gather today. Look across this room, different people from different walks of life. How is it that we're gathered? We're gathered under the one name, the one banner, Jesus Christ, his perfection, his sacrifice, and his resurrection. That's how we're gathered. We find our peace. We find our place and our security, not by ascending in this life through pride and insecurity, but by humbly receiving 
his descent to us in Christ. This wonderful hymn in Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, probably one of the first hymns, Christian hymns ever written. This is what Paul says in this hymn. Through Jesus Christ, though Jesus Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." See what Jesus does. As the people at Babel wanted to build a tower to the heavens for their own name, what Jesus does is he comes down for us in humility and lowliness and dies for us, rises again, and gives us an identity in his name. Not our own name. We find our identity in his name. We find our place, our peace, our salvation in his name. That's the invitation of the gospel. Don't build up your own name. You'll actually dehumanize yourself by doing that. You'll find who you are and who you're created to be by attaching your identity to the name of Christ, his name. Root yourself in Christ. Find yourself in Christ. For in him alone are you secure. For in him alone are you satisfied. For him alone are you saved. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your descent to us to intervene, to fix our mess, and to lead us into a, a better path. Lord, we confess our idols to you, the ways we prop up a facade in life, acting like we're okay, seeking a name for ourselves, worried about what people think. God, help us to put all that away, to be freed and liberated to be who you created us to be, to not pretend, but to enjoy one another, to be vulnerable with one another, to share our hearts and our needs. Thank you for the local church. It's that, it's that setting that is safe to do that. Thank you that we gather under one name, Jesus Christ, and that name is being proclaimed among all people groups, even now as we, as I pray in Montreal, a team there hearing the word preached in, in, in French among the Quebecois so that people can be saved and come under that one name, Jesus Christ, and find their identity in him. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your redeeming power. In Jesus' name, amen.